Hey everybody, Brian McClanahan here. I've been talking about LearnTrue, T-R-U-E, history.com. You've heard about it several times in the introduction of this podcast. So get on out to LearnTrueHistory.com to get history the way it was intended to be told with no PC, no Marxism, no progressivism. But not only that, I've got my new How Alexander Hamilton Screwed Up America, my forthcoming book. So I want you to go to LearnTrueHistory.com to sign up for that great program. But also, if you go to BlameHamilton.com, you can get in on some giveaways for my forthcoming book. So two websites for you, LearnTrueHistory.com and BlameHamilton.com. Get in on both of those things. LearnTrueHistory.com is the place to go to learn history the way it was intended to be told. BlameHamilton.com is where you learn about how Alexander Hamilton was the greatest villain in American history. This is The Brian McClanahan Show. T-minus 15 seconds. Guidance is internal. 12, 11, 10, 9. Ignition sequence start. 6, 5, 4, 3, Can I get a countdown? Welcome back to the Brian McClanahan Show. This is episode 102. Glad to have you back on the program. Glad to be here. Before we get started today, I just want to remind you that if you do like this podcast, please share it around on social media. And you can find me on social media. You can find me on Facebook. Just search for Brian McClanahan. You can like me there. You can follow me on Twitter, at Brian McClanahan. And you can subscribe to my YouTube page. Simply look up Brian McClanahan. Also, if you do like this podcast and you wish to help me out, help support it, you can throw a few pennies my way. Just go to brianmcclanahan.com forward slash support, and I appreciate any type of donation you would like to make. Uh, if you are interested in getting my forthcoming book, How Alexander Hamilton Screwed Up America, you have about a month left to get the promotions before they expire, so go on out to blamehamilton.com and follow the rules. There, just click on the little button. And you can get a couple of giveaways. If you order one book, you can get a, a, a ebook, The Jeffersonian Solution. If you order two or more, you'll get the ebook and a six-lecture course on Alexander Hamilton. You can't beat that. Plus, everyone who does uh, sign up for the promotions for the giveaways is entered into a contest where the uh, grand prize winner will get a master-level subscription to LibertyClassroom.com. So you don't want to miss out on that. It's highly worth your time to go out and do it. And plus... You're only, the, 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 uh, the book itself is well worth the $20 that you're going to pay for it, and you get all this cool free stuff with it. And September 18th, all that goes away. So you, you want to get it before the book comes out on the release date. Also, if you go to brianmcclanahan.com, you can give me an email address, and I will put you on my uh, email list, and you get a free ebook with that. You get Forgotten Founders, and you get a free audiobook of the same title read by yours truly. So a lot of good giveaways out there, some some stuff. If you'll just give me an email address or if you'll pre-order a book, there's a lot of stuff I have to give you. So uh, think about those things. Now today's uh, podcast is a little different from uh, previous shows. In fact, it's going to be a little longer podcast because what I'm going to do is rerun a talk I made on Robert E. Lee uh, about a little over two years ago, now almost three years ago. Uh, and I, I made this talk in January 2015. Now, if, if you think about the date there, this was before the June of 2015, when all of the attacks against the uh, Confederate monuments really began the way they are now. 
So I was already ahead of the curve at that point. I had written about Robert E. Lee in my Politically Incorrect Guide to Real American Heroes. And so I, I wanted to just rerun this. Maybe you've never heard this before. It's been on YouTube. Uh, but I thought, well, I'll put it in the podcast, the audio version of it. And the audio quality is not as good as my podcast quality, but I did try to enhance that a little bit so it sounds better. This is before I got all my podcast equipment. Before It was a year before I started the podcast. So uh, I was still working with some things that just weren't quite as good in terms of uh, equipment. But um, I think that you'll enjoy what I have to say. In fact, the, the topic of the, of the podcast is not just about Lee, though I do get into Lee quite a bit. It's also about a book that the other side often uses to disparage Lee. It's written by Elizabeth Brown Pryor, and it's entitled Reading the Man. And so I take apart that book, um, and it's, it's just a, it's a book that, if you, as I say in the, in the audio, if you can get it for a few bucks, go ahead and buy it. There's some worthwhile parts of it. But overall, it's, it's, a, it's a joke of a book. And uh, there, I've been sent articles recently, well, The Atlantic came out with this attack on Lee and these other things. Yeah, so this is my, respond to, this is my response to that. And I, I did it almost three years ago, and uh, two and a half years ago. And so I, I had anticipated these things. Of course, my Politically Incorrect correct Guide to Real American Heroes came out in 2012. So uh, th this topic has been on my mind for a long time. And, and since I've already done it, uh, and I think I did it pretty well in, in going through this book, I'm just going to rerun it here. So I hope you enjoy the, uh, the uh, audio here from that talk I made in 2015. And I'll see you next time on The Brian McClanahan Show. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. It's January 19, 2015, and Brian McClanahan here, and I'm going to talk about a book uh, in honor of uh, January 19th, of course, is uh, Robert, Lee, Robert E. Lee's birthday. And so uh, I've been reading uh, one of the most recent biographies, and I wanted to do a little review. Now, I wanted to write this, but I didn't really have the time, so I thought I'd just get on the camera here and talk about this particular book and go over some of the things I thought about it and uh, discuss Lee himself who in my politically incorrect guide to real American heroes I listed as one of the great American heroes um, throughout American history and, and included him among many others so I thought it would be appropriate of course being that today is his birthday to talk about Lee and also to get into this this biography by uh, Elizabeth Brown Pryor um, the title of the book is Reading the Man, and the uh, prior essentially had access to some letters, apparently around 400, that had never been read before. They were given to her by the Lee family. And so the objective of the book, which incidentally won a Lincoln Prize, was to portray Lee through his letters. And um, this had never really been done before. Of course, you had very... Uh, lengthy biographies. Lee has had has been the subject of over 500 biographies uh, in uh, the last, say, 150 years. So there's been a lot written about Lee, but uh, Brown, uh, uh, Pryor's uh, approach is rather novel because what she does is take a letter, all of the letters that she uses in this particular fashion had never been seen before, and she uses them as departure points for what she calls uh, essays on that particular subject. So the positives about this book, and, and I would recommend getting it if you can get it at a bargain basement price. I purchased mine on, mine on um, bookoutlet.com, and I think I got it for about three bucks in paperback form. So if you can get it that way, I would recommend getting it. Otherwise, 
Uh, get it at your library if you want to read it. There are some interesting parts about the book, and those letters, those unpublished letters, or un, un, those letters that have never been seen before and published for the first time in the book, are interesting. Uh, and I think that's that's one of the great things about the book. Pryor is also a very good writer, and she weaves a nice story. And she does get some things right, but very few of them, I must say. And uh, there. <coughs> Because this won the Lincoln Prize, you have to be cautious going into the book. Um, in fact, I think overall, the best assessment I can make is that her main objective in writing this book is to, what she says, make Lee more human. And this is part of a growing trend among historians to take these figures who had been so uh, uh, enjoyed by American historians or Americans in general and essentially she believes made into almost demigods and tear them down. You see this with uh, George Washington uh, and you, or, or Thomas Jefferson and of course Lee ranks up there with Washington as one of the greatest Americans in history and people have long recognized this so if you can tear them down in any particular way make them more human and what Pryor essentially says is Lee is nothing more than middle class um, she makes this assertion in one of the chapters, which I find very humorous. But he was just a normal middle-class guy, uh, and we shouldn't really think so highly of Lee because he had all these personal foils and everything that's been written about him, in particular the biography by Douglas Southall Freeman, which was too laudatory. Uh, we should just uh, take these things with a grain of salt and really read who Lee was. So using that as the departure point, Using that as her main objective, I'm going to go through the book and outline some of the things that I think are problematic in that particular approach, at least the way she interprets that particular approach. I have no problem with that approach. If you want to lead, read Lee's letters and then say, okay, this is who Lee was, well, that's fine. But she doesn't always do that. And that's the main issue I have with this particular book. So again, it's Elizabeth Brown Pryor uh, reading The Man, A Portrait of Robert E. Lee, through his private letters. So to begin with, um, she makes a very interesting statement early on in the book. She says that she's not going to step into the psycho-historical world of inference and conjecture. She says that's dangerous business. She says she has no clinical evidence of a lot of these things, a lot of these uh, assertions that have been made by Lee, uh, whether it's that he had uh, foot fetishes, which is I've never read that, but um, <clears throat> whether he had some type of pent-up sexual feelings about things. I mean, this this is getting into the psycho-historical babble that uh, Fawn Brody made famous with Thomas Jefferson. And, of course, this is what people try to do now with historical figures. They, they try to uh, put them on the couch, so to speak, and say, well, this is what they were really like because they had problems with their mother. Uh, this is Freud coming through history. And it's silly. And so at that point, page 29 of the book, I thought, well, maybe we're getting to something here. Maybe this is not going to be so bad. And of course, the book is well written. So I thought, okay, well, let's go further. So this is a rather meaty book. It's uh, almost 600 pages. And so it's, it's substantial. So I thought, well, let, let me keep reading. And we'll keep going and uh, keep discussing, uh, keep looking at how, how prior takes Robert E. Lee's life. Um, 
There was one particular, something she does get right. One of the things is the reverence for Arlington. And this is weaved throughout the book. Arlington as the base of the Lee family, or at least Robert E. Lee, and of course, by default, his wife, who was um, related to Martha Washington, directly related to Martha Washington, the only daughter of George Washington Park Custis, who was essentially, who, who built Arlington and who essentially was the man to go to if you wanted to learn anything about Washington. And was the Arlington house was full of Washington artifacts, the blanket that he died under. And so if Washington, George Washington Park Custis was the uh, Washington historian in the 19th century. And so she grew up at Arlington. And of course, Lee marries into Arlington. Uh, and so that's she does a nice job talking about how important Arlington was. Um, and I think that's that's a solid part of the book. In fact, near the end of the book, um, she has a very interesting quote about Arlington and what it was and what it meant to the Lees and how important it was to them and how important this seat of, of um, southern life was important not only to the Lees but also to all of the South. She has a very interesting statement. She says, Home was threatened, Homeways threatened had begun the war, Homeways destroyed would retard the peace. I think that's very important to, to, to note. She does a good job with that. And she brings us into Arlington. She says the Civil War was a catastrophe for Southern families who had sacrificed not only dear sons and brothers, but the rootstock of their lives as well. Though the cruelty of marauders and the suspicion that the Sacred Hearth could not be defended by either the Army or government had eroded Confederate commitment during the war, paradoxically, in the end, the appalling destruction served to create a unity among Southerners that was more solid than it had been at the outset. Now, I think she's wrong there in terms of this unity during the war. This is um, uh, Drew Gilpin Faust nonsense, which she, she reads uh, and she cites several times that there was no real Confederate nationalism. This was all just uh, a bunch of hogwash. Uh, of course, in his best book that he ever wrote, Gary Gallagher pointed that, that that's not true. The Confederate War, these people were very determined to sustain this war. Mary Lee herself said she would rather die than surrender. And so she was... Uh, very discouraged when the Southern armies did surrender because they had lost so much. Arlington House, and I'll get to this in a minute, uh, had been ruined by the Union, had been illegally confiscated, and then turned into a cemetery. Um, that's also one of the parts of the book that I think she gets completely wrong in terms of, she, she says she's not going to engage in historical inference, but she does it all the time. And that's one particular case she does, and I'll get to that in a few minutes. So moving forward, she, she does she starts the book chronologically. So she starts with Lee as a young man, um, and goes forward into his physical development. One thing she does, I think, and she tries to tear down a myth that George Washington was a heavy influence in Robert E. Lee's life. And she does this by saying he never mentioned him in his letters. In fact. Uh, early on in the book, she says, It is true that Lee was surrounded by sacred paraphernalia from, his from this national hero, meaning George Washington, and that he sometimes enjoyed handling it. But this in itself is no grounds for the assumption that Lee felt anything beyond a normal curiosity about historic relics. 
Why? Because he doesn't say anything much in his letters about George Washington. He lived at Arlington House, which was essentially a monument to George Washington. His wife would proudly call herself a descendant of George Washington. Of course, through marriage. But regardless, she would proudly call herself that. So, to say that Washington had no impact on Robert E.'s life because he never mentioned him in a letter is just silly. And she does this over and over again. So she, she, in this case, she says, well, he doesn't say anything in a letter about it. He talks a lot about Winfield Scott, which Robert E. Lee did. He had great admiration for Winfield Scott. Never mentioned George Washington. So obviously, George Washington had no impact on Robert E. Lee's life. Okay, so take that. Take that. She, he never mentioned Ro, uh, George Washington. So we can't say anything positive about this. Okay, so moving forward, we get... Um, that, that particular element of Lee's story intertwined throughout the book. Washington wasn't very important. In fact, when she gets into the war and people start comparing Washington and Lee, she says, well, I mean, of course, they're both from Virginia and they both had a kind of a similar generalship in some ways, but that's it. I mean, Lee fought more like Winfield Scott than George Washington. And so Winfield Scott is the guy that Lee admired he had served under, under him during the Mexican War, loved Winfield Scott. This is true. Uh, and so she says these comparisons to George Washington just don't make sense. Even Southerners saying that George Washington was their guy doesn't make sense because the North could claim him too. And plus, he's going against everything George Washington stood for by uh, fighting against the Union. Therein lies one of the other, another major problems of the book. She has a very limited conception of what this idea of secession was in the South and um, how they viewed secession. And even Lee himself, how he viewed the Union. This is, this is pretty interesting. I'll, so let me get into this a little bit. She, she says uh, at one point when Lee had to take his oath when he went to West Point, and this was the oath they took, I do solemnly swear that I will bear true allegiance to the United States of America and that I will serve them honestly and faithfully against all their enemies or opposers whatsoever. Notice the United States is plural. I will serve them honestly and faithfully against all their enemies. This is Lee's conception of union. And so she's very confused throughout the book how Lee could actually side with Virginia when he took this oath of the Constitution. He loved the Constitution. He loved the government. And he did. He loved their Union. But when that union of states was destroyed, he could not fight against his home state of Virginia because Virginia was his country. His conception of the union was in plural, and that was the constitution he wanted to defend. So she also goes through the book, uh, and she essentially calls Lee a liar. She does so... Does so Later in the book, when she gets into the war, um, she says, Lee would later concoct elaborate constitutional theories to explain his decision, i.e. to go with Virginia, but they belied the words that he spoke at the moment of crisis. No, they didn't. Lee was perfectly clear. He would fight for the union of independent states. If that union was gone, he'd side with Virginia because he wouldn't fight against his own country. 
So Lee had spent over 30 years in the United States Army. This is going to be a very taxing decision. How do you, how do you uh, deal with secession? And Lee was not alone in this. Lots of people had, uh, had problems with this. So, but she has no idea or no conception of this, this, this uh, nature of the Union where the Union was plural and the original Constitution. It was a perpetual Union, no doubt, but a Union of States. And a perpetual simply means that it has no end date. It can end. And Lee thought it could end, and it did end. And so therefore he would fight with Virginia against what he thought would be the destruction of the Constitution and the Union. And she gets into this later in the book too. She, she can't conceptualize how the Confederacy was uh, hated the old Union. They didn't hate the old Union. They loved the old Union. They loved the Union of free and independent states bound together for commerce and defense, and that's it. And so when they wrote a new constitution, she's made this very stupid statement. The only difference between the Confederate Constitution and the U.S. Constitution was in their view of slavery. I guess she's never read the document because that, <laughs> that's not the only difference between the two. Yes, they're fundamentally the same in a lot of ways, but there are other differences there. And if you very carefully read those, and I recommend if you haven't read it, Marshall DeRosa's The Confederate Constitution, he outlines in detail all of the differences between the U.S. Constitution and the Confederate Constitution, and it wasn't only slavery. Uh, that was part of it, but it wasn't only slavery. So this is part of the problem I also have with this book. She, she has a very limited understanding, I think, of history in total, because she makes some very silly statements at times. Uh, and so one of those silly statements... Uh, and I'm going to get to the most glaring problems of the book in a minute. But one of those silly statements, um, here's one. This is about the Mexican War. Polk gambled that he could achieve his goals bloodlessly, and he was able to bully the British into a favorable settlement on the Oregon Territory. That's completely false. Polk wasn't able to bully anybody into uh, the Oregon settlement. The British, for over a year, wouldn't even talk to the United States because Polk was a fool and thinking he was going to stare, as he said, John Bull in the eye and make the British flinch. They didn't flinch because of Polk. They decided to negotiate on the 49th parallel because that's where they wanted to settle it before, and Polk backed down. He was saying 54-40 or fight in the 1844 campaign, and then he was willing to go to 49th parallel because that's what the British were going to do, and if, they, if he wouldn't agree to that, well, then they might fight the United States for it, and Polk knew that, would, that could never happen. So there's one of her stupid historical mistakes. She also gets into the fact that there was opposition to the war, the Mexican War, fails to mention that John C. Calhoun opposed the war. It was only these great northerners like Henry David Thoreau and John Quincy Adams, these abolitionists who saw the slave power in the war. This is her uh, lack of uh, complete understanding of American history that uh, is really problematic. Uh, and that's just one example. Another, uh, which I found very funny, uh, this has to do with Lincoln himself, and um, what he said about uh, <laughs> the Fort Sumter uh, situation. And, uh, in early April, Lincoln made the difficult decision to resupply Fort Sumter. Sumter wasn't difficult for Lincoln. He had been wanting to do it since March, since he took office. He'd been polling his cabinet to resupply the fort, and they were the ones that were saying, don't do it. Lincoln wanted to do it from the beginning, but he was only sustained by his postmaster general. Well, I mean, sure, you got to have the Postmaster General support because, you know, without him, we don't get the mail. So the only person that would support Lincoln's decision to resupply Fort Sumter was his Postmaster. Everyone else said, no, don't do it. 
But Lincoln made the difficult decision in April of 1861, agonized over it. No, he never agonized over it. This is the course Lincoln wanted to take from the beginning. And so there was no agony there. It wasn't difficult. But this is what she does at times. Uh, so there's really no understanding of history in this particular book. And there's several other cases of this, but that's just two that I found um, extremely funny. <clears throat> so one of, the, one of the worst parts about the book, and this is what people have focused on quite extensively, was, and where she really tries to tear Lee down, is this, what she thinks is a myth that Lee uh, was a really compassionate person when it came to the institution of slavery, that he was really an abolitionist at heart, uh, and that he begrudgingly accepted slavery. And so she tries to show throughout the book that Lee wasn't that way. Um, and this, of course, is keeping in, in fashion, in fashionable trends, to take these Southerners and make them less than what we perceive them to be. And so all the people who, um, and I've seen this on several blogs and websites, this book has been, that's why I wanted to read it, one of the reasons, this book has been shown and held up as the definitive book proving that Lee was really a really bad guy and uh, that he didn't like uh, black people, uh, that he hated black people, in fact, and he would abuse them. Uh, and so uh, Pryor goes out of her way to try to prove this. Uh, she says she's doing this just by reading Lee's letters. This is all about Lee's letters, remember. But not really, because what she does throughout most of this is use secondary sources as a diatribe against slavery, which it's almost like she has to prove that she doesn't like slavery. I mean, in uh, 2015, what person has to sit down and prove they don't like slavery? It's just a given. But uh, she has to go into this very long, drawn-out, three chapters of the book are dedicated to this, uh, analysis of Lee and um, how we shouldn't use him as an example of an enlightened Southerner. She even attacks other people like George Mason. Uh, so, I mean, this is, this is hilarious. But... Um, So let me get into that particular idea, uh, this idea of Lee as the evil slave owner. Uh, and so, like I said, there's three chapters on this particular section. The, the first is called, uh, the title of the first chapel is The Family Circle. And um, so she starts with three letters. Uh, or, I'm sorry, a couple of letters, one of which was written by Lee himself in 1858, and he's looking for some runaways. Uh, and so he's willing to, uh, to pay for these runaways to come back to Arlington. Um, and one of the things she says throughout the book is that Southerners never thought of slaves as humans. Their humanity was uh, placed out of the picture. Well, if you read these letters, I don't know how she could say that because Lee calls these people people. He never calls them chattel. He never calls them anything but people. So in that regard, you look at this and you think to yourself, well, how is she coming to this conclusion? If she's reading the man and Lee calls slaves people, uh, how could you come to that particular conclusion? But this is what she does. Um, and so she goes through this particular situation in, in dealing with 
um, slavery, particularly at Arlington. Um, she does say at one point that you know Lee saw the, these people as individuals and that um, you know they were people, but then she goes and says they weren't people. So which one is it? She 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 accepts and she recognizes. So she's very inconsistent. Um, she makes a very interesting statement. Slavery at heart was a system of coerced labor, and it was for this that the black people had been brought to Arlington. Okay. Never a more profoundly stupid statement has been made. Everyone knows that. It's almost like uh, I had a, I had an essay one time years ago from uh, a student, and it said the American Revolution was not an event that didn't happen for no reason. Okay. Um, true. Slavery... People were, slaves were brought to Arlington to work. Yes, it was a system of coerced labor. Yes. So she makes statements like that, and you're thinking, okay, uh, what's your point? Everyone knows that. Almost to prove that she knows this. And then she starts um, making some statements that just, um, and, and the problem I have with some of these statements is the evidentiary support she uses does not exist. So, if she, if she just wouldn't do that, and again, she's reading the man supposedly, but yet she, she doesn't do that very well. Uh, here's a statement on page 128. Whether the lax performance was due to incompetence or artfulness is an interesting question. It undoubtedly stemmed partially from the attitude of Custis, who himself was negligent of his duties as master and came to require little of his servants. But the inefficiency also hints to passive resistance, one of the few ways that slaves could manage to control, however marginally, a system in which power was so asymmetrical. Slaves took pride in outwinning their masters and developing elaborate ways of communicating and imposing any kind of work that would turn them into beasts of burden. Life without a say about how they lived and toiled, slaves fought the system as best they could. They delayed and dissembled, broke equipment, and embarrassed the master. And she uses Eugene Genovese's evidentiary support from his great masterful work on slavery role, Jordan Roll. So I went to the book. And of course, I've seen this before, and never from Genovese, though. So I went to the book, and I looked at the page. Genovese says nothing about this. In fact, the, the particular section she talks about uh, was discussing how uh, Southerners complained about slaves not working, but then she's going to infer that they were doing this on purpose because they're trying to shirk their responsibilities. This is historical inference, the thing she says that she's not going to do. So she just infers this was happening. Um, I mean, it could be. It could not be. Tools break. They could have been broken on purpose or not. Who knows? There's no record of this. So if you're going to read the man and say, well, this is we're going to say, this is exactly what happened because this is what the letters say, then do that. Otherwise, you're engaging in historical inference, which is exactly what she does, which she says she's not going to do. And then she says on the next page, ridicule, inefficiency, and irritation were the tools slaves used to prove that the system did not work and there was a limit to their acceptance of it. Again, Genovese never says that. Uh, there have been some articles in the last 30 years or so that would say this. However, this flies in the face of one of the most uh, controversial books on slavery, Time on the Cross by Fogel and Engerman, which essentially said that slavery was a very efficient system, that uh, slaves worked fairly well and had high profits. Um, and so, <laughs> which one is it? So she's taken a position from the recent historical literature. Things like slave hairstyles were some form of resistance. I mean, this is just preposterous. But this is what happens. Um, and so uh, she accepts this and then uses a book to support her claim that doesn't say what she says. So this is a, a major problem of the book. And she goes into um, 
quite a lot of detail uh, about slavery and using secondary sources to do it. She also says that um, one of the things about slavery she can't believe is the hospitals and taking care of slaves. Uh, there was no hum human concern in that whatsoever. And again, this is another thing that people have done. I read a dissertation one time about one of the great uh, southern plantations, and the hospital was placed right near the main home. Uh, it's one of the big uh, plantations in Louisiana, sugar plantations, one of the largest that was built near the end of the war, and or near the beginning, of, just before the war, excuse me. So uh, it's a huge home, and they put a, they put a hospital on this uh, property, and it was put near the house. And this person just inferred, just... Ah, there's no evidence of this, but he says, well, I'm sure the hospital's put there because he wanted to make sure the slaves felt that uh, there was this menacing uh, house and that they're always subjected. And the hospital's there so they could keep an eye on these six slaves because you didn't want them escaping. It was just because they wanted to make sure that the slaves were uh, had, had medical care because this was your labor force. So she does say there's some pragmatism here as well, absolutely. I mean, you have a labor force. You don't. If a, if a, if a slave is sick, uh, they can't work. And so there was a lot of money and time spent in medical care for this population of people. Um, and she says, in the tangle web of denial about the humanity of the slaves, the tangle web of denial about the humanity, Lee calls them people. She just said a couple pages before, well, they recognize them as humans, but now in the tangle web of denial of the humanity of these slaves. I mean, what is this? It's so inconsistent at times. Uh, she she doesn't. Uh, it's just it's silly when she gets into this particular part of the book. These three chapters. Then um, she says, uh, nonetheless, like so many other aspects of slavery, the privilege carried a paradoxical twist. This privilege is growing their own food and uh, having their own chickens and things of that nature. Which, uh, by the way, at times. Um, when slaves would sell this stuff, that was illegal, but they would do it anyway. So this is another thing that Genovese actually gets into and other, other people have talked about. Uh, there was this element of autonomy uh, on the plantations, and the, the, the um, slave owners would look the other way about this stuff, and even though they weren't supposed to buy these products, they would at fair market value. In fact, in South Carolina, it's a very interesting case where one horse breeding was illegal for slaves, but there was the best horse breeder in the whole state was a slave, and he made a lot of money on this. So this kind of stuff happened a lot. But she says doing that had a twist. Slaves cultivated <clears throat> the coveted gardens on their own time, robbing them of leisure and adding to their labor. Well, they didn't have to do it. The only benefit they theoretically derived from slavery, the assurance of sustenance, was now casually removed from the master's responsibility and put in their own hands. Uh, again, if you read other accounts of this, um, this was not required of them. They did it on their own time uh, to augment their diet. Uh, and they did this a lot of times to also make money to sell products. Okay, so uh, that was illegal, but they could do that. She also talks about education, and she makes this very funny statement. Um, another complicating factor was that one classroom contained pupils of all ages and abilities in these slave schools. <clears throat> As these people at Arlington, the, the family at Arlington, was teaching slaves to read and write, which was illegal, but they were doing it anyways. Uh, as they were doing this, one of the problems is that they had this one-room schoolhouse. 
I'm not certain where Pryor uh, understood her history of American education, but up until the 20th century, uh, even into the 20th century, one-room schoolhouses were not uncommon and had people there of all ages and abilities. So she says this is a knock against this. Another complicating factor was that one classroom contained people's... So what? This happened all over the United States for white children as well. So I guess that was a complicating factor teaching white children how to read and write too. This is just one of the silly things she says in the book, among many. Uh, she talks about church and how the white family and black families at Arlington would go to church together. They did, and how they nicely talked on the way to church. And, uh, this, but these people aren't human. And so this is where you know she says statements like that, but then she, she the evidence, her own evidence that she has points to a different direction, but her conclusions say otherwise. <clears throat> so, um, there's another chapter. The next chapter talks about humanity under the law. Uh, and how this is where she really starts to tear Lee down and how he really didn't believe in um, the ideas of abolitionism, which is probably true. I mean, Lee wasn't uh, an abolitionist like you would find in the North. In fact, despised abolitionists. Uh, but his view of slavery had been molded by the Custises uh, by his by his wife, um, by his wife's family, and so he wasn't one who had a rigid belief in uh, slavery. But he did he, he did accept the system, uh, just as George Mason accepted the system. And she she's very critical of George Mason because she says this: nor for all of his political genius did he ever pose a remedy for the slow poison. Um, well, Mason believed in abolition. I uh, just didn't know how to do it. And this was something that could be said of many in the founding generation. They didn't like the institution. Um, but they had to accept it because they didn't know how to get rid of it. She also uh, goes into historical inference several times, uh, again, about slavery. Um, Lee uh, wrote a will in which he freed the much maligned Nancy and her children to what he intended for the others he owned is not stated, nor is it clear whether or not we should assume that a special relationship would inspire Nancy's preferential treatment. So why mention it? This is where she gets into inference. Why mention it? That's not the case. Um, she also gets into the fact that Lee was uh, believed in the racial superiority of white people. Well, I think if you look at the 19th century, what American, with the exception of very few abolitionists, didn't believe in that, North and South? This was not something uncommon in the North. She, she fails to mention that several times in the book. She says that Lee had this uh, racial superiority and um, that this was um, you know, one of his main driving factors in joining the Confederacy. Well, if you look at the North, there were racial superiorities, people believing racial superiority of, superiority of white people in the North, too. In fact, the majority of the population. Even Lincoln himself said that. So to slap Lee with this as kind of a put-down, uh, which is what she's trying to do, 
it just it doesn't make any sense in the context of the time. Okay, you, sure you can say that, but you'd also have to say it just about everybody else in the 19th century as well. And this is again um, at the end of uh, one of the chapters. Uh, she says that Lee could embrace the need for justice, but it was a justice defined by unjust principles. His racism and his limited imagination meant he, that he never admitted the humanity of the slaves with whom he lived. He never admitted the humanity of the slaves with whom he lived. Yet he called them people! And he tried to care for them as people. But he never admitted their humanity. This is where she's just so silly. She contradicts herself. If you're going to read the letters, read the letters. Don't contradict yourself throughout the book. And she does this over and over again. Uh, the, the chapter, I think, that received most of the attention uh, in terms of this position that Lee was a really bad guy. Uh, one, one of the other things, well, before I do that, uh, you know, as I said, she considered Lee middle class because he focused spent most of his letters talking about his children and didn't leave any long treatises on military uh, strategy or tactics or government. He's writing personal letters to family. Now, if I was writing a personal letter to my wife, or to my children. I don't think I'd launch into long, uh, drawn-out uh, dissertation on history. I might give some advice, but I would ask about children. How are the children doing? What's going on at home? These things comfort you. So she's saying because Lee did this, he was just that's all they really cared about. He didn't really care about anything else. Uh, you know, military tactics, all these things. It wasn't really that important to him. He cared about his children. This is true. He did. He was a very adoring father. But again, this is kind of silly to make statements like that. That, that goes, that's a given. Now, one of the things he also said, uh, she also said that was very funny, I think, when she described his character, oh, inference. Uh, Lee, of course, had um, a relationship with Martha Custis Williams, who was um, his cousin. Uh, and apparently, uh, Pryor believes there was something more to it than just this type of relationship. So, uh, but she says, any further speculation would degenerate into historical gossip for despite a powerful lingering affection, they're prob there it probably ended. Then why even bring it up? Again, she's putting Lee on the couch. Don't infer anything, but yet we're going to infer that maybe something else was going on here. This is what people have tried to do with George Washington. Uh, he also... She also says that the reason Lee liked women so much and liked the company of women was because he was uncomfortable around men. Again, this is putting Lee, this is psychoanalyzing Robert Lee because uh, he, he didn't like the uh, cutthroat repertoire and the pressure to live up to preconceived notion, image of success. He didn't like that. So he'd rather be around women because it was softer and he was much more comfortable there. Again, this is just silly. How does she know that? He never said that. If you're going to read the letters, don't try to infer what Lee was like. Okay, so let me move forward to, the again, the most glaring problem of the book, uh, which is the uh, chapter on Theory Meets Reality, where Lee was a slaveholder, and he had to dispose of the slaves uh, through a will from George Washington Park Custis. She says all of her claims are verifiable, that Lee was actually a brutal guy. She starts with a letter from a slave named Wesley Norris. And this Norris letter was used um, before the war, came out in 1859, and then several times after the war. The thing you have to understand about the Norris letter, and what he says essentially is Lee had him whipped severely, poured brine in his wounds, and Lee actually did the whipping himself. 
Lee said twice the letter is not true. The letter uh, was transcribed by an abolitionist, and this was quite common in the 1850s. You start seeing really uh, with Uncle Tom's Cabin, of course, the very famous book, Twelve Years a Slave by Solomon Northrup. These books were transcribed by abolitionists with the sole intent of an agenda. And so historians have, have been have tried to be very careful with these because, and even Pryor self admits, well, some of these things aren't true, but I'm going to say this one's true uh, because it's all verifiable. There's nothing verifiable about Lee whipping Norris himself or pouring brine as one. There's no, there's no evidence that any of that ever happened. Some of the things in the letter can be proven. Norris did run away. Uh, he, was re he was brought back to Arlington, and Lee did pay a substantial amount of money to get him back. Um, and he possibly was whipped. Uh, th this could be true. Uh, but the, the fact that Lee did it himself or was cruel in it, is, uh, there's, that's not verifiable. So she can't prove it, but she says she can. And she tries at the end, but again, unsuccessfully. Um, so this particular section, it's a short section, but again, it's been held up by those who want to criticize Robert E. Lee um, because this, this shows that Lee didn't really see slaves as humans. And even she says it again, Lee was unsuccessful as a master largely because he neglected to see the situation in human terms. He embraced the legal and economic aspects of the master-slave system without really grasping its complex underlying relationships. He never recognized the slave's fundamental desire to change their condition. Instead, he tried to superimpose his sense of duty upon them. Uh, he broke up families and whipped people. Uh, now, when Lee inherited the Custis estate, it was in ruin financially. He tried to bring it back, and he did use slave labor to do so. And the will stipulated that um, when the debts, and, and this is from the will, when, when all of the debts were satisfied, the slaves could be free within five years. So she says Lee reluctantly did this in 1863. Uh, he was following the will. A court ruled against him, but he was following the will the way he interpreted the will and the way the will was, the will was really written by George Washington uh, Park Custis. So uh, that's the problem. And so this thing is, uh, these, these, this evidence is used to say, well, Lee is uh, just a terrible guy. Um, so uh, there's that. And, and there's so many other parts of the book that I think are problematic. Um, the way that she views the Confederacy, one of the things she tries to say is that this adulation that has been foisted upon Lee is unwarranted. He was just a simple man, a middle-class guy who had all these problems. Um, you know, he... Uh, he just, he really wasn't that great of a general. She says this several times. I mean, subordinates said he wasn't that great of a general. Uh, he kind of blundered through things. He got lucky lots of times. Uh, he used uh, the genius of subordinates to make himself look better. Uh, so the book itself, again, this is reading the man, uh, a portrait by, of Robert E. Lee. I would rather say this is misreading the man and uh, in, uh, using inference to describe Robert E. Lee. So if you want, if you got, can get it for a few bucks, uh, it might be worth it. Um, I bought it in paperback again. It did win the Lincoln Prize, uh, but it's just not very good. Uh, there are so many problems with it uh, and too many departures uh, in historical inference. And one thing I was going to mention is Montgomery Meeks. She spends a whole chapter in Arlington and what happened during the war with the property. She doesn't believe that Meigs made uh, Arlington what it became the cemetery because he had any type of disdain for the South and the Lees in general. Remember, Meigs' son was killed uh, during the war, and so he hated Robert E. Lee for that. He blamed him for everything. 
And this is the funny part, again, because she goes in this very long two paragraphs. She spends, well, Meigs was an engineer, so he probably had this flair for design, which is why he really wanted to make Arlington what it was. It's beautiful. Arlington was beautiful before that. They tore down the peach orchards. They got rid of the gardens. They ripped up the forests. Everything was ruined around Arlington. They, they illegally confiscated the property during the war. Meigs was behind that, probably. So Meigs was vindictive. And to say he wasn't, again, you're inferring. You have no evidence. She says, well, there's no evidence that he was vindictive. I think it was this. There's no evidence in your point. There's probably more evidence about Meigs' vindictiveness than there is against it, just in the way he was and the things that he said, even at the time of the war. So, uh, again, the book suffers from all kinds of problems. Uh, reading the man or misreading the man, uh, Miss Pryor, she, she writes very well, uh, and I think you know that is alluring. But uh, And so she does what... Um, uh, has been said historians need to do is write readable books. Um, Shelby Foote often said this. If historians would just learn how to write, we'd be a, be a lot better. So she does that. She writes a very readable book. But otherwise, uh, this thing uh, should be avoided. If you can get it in the bargain basement bin or check it out of your library, I'd recommend it. But um, this is just another attempt by the modern historical profession to, um, to downgrade uh, certain people in American history have been hoisted up as heroes. Uh, and Robert Lee is one of them. All right, I know this is a long uh, review, but I think that it was necessary to get some of these things out. Hope you enjoyed it, and I'll see you next time. <laughs>